Well, I find myself a little giddy this evening. Been looking forward to this time for quite a while since we put it on the calendar several months ago. Uh, we trust and pray that uh, all of the prayer, all of the efforts uh, that God will use these for his honor and his glory. Uh, so we've been looking forward to this. I, I can't wait for you to hear some of my uh, friends and fellow co-laborers speak uh, the, the clear gospel of Jesus Christ and be able to proclaim him to us and stir your heart for world evangelism. And I know the Lord will do that. Uh, it is with some uh, fear and trepidation, though, that I, I want to start uh, this first hour uh, with you myself. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 22, or Psalm 22, I should say. Psalm 22. Uh, as you're turning there, uh, this evening's schedule, uh, I will speak um, uh, for about an hour here or so. You say, that's impossible. You never speak for an hour. Well, I can, so uh, we'll see what happens. I know it is Friday night, and many of you are really tired, but uh, I used to teach block classes for Bible college, and you would teach uh, from 8 in the morning till 5 in the afternoon with a little, little break for lunch. So I've, I, I have the stamina to do that. At least I used to when I was younger. Hopefully, we won't have to do that this evening. Uh, but... Um, you know, there are a lot of great mission texts in the Bible that you could go to to proclaim. Um, tonight, however, I'm going to go to a text that I have never heard preached on mission before. Now, I know that that is dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. But I believe that this text legitimately deals with God's desire for the nations, for the evangelization of the nations. And I also believe through much prayer... I petitioned the Lord on several times that God will use this in his assembly for his own glory. If you look at Psalm 22, I think in order to understand this psalm a bit more, you need to know that this is a psalm of lament and praise. That it's, it, it's a, a psalm that uh, has a lot at the very beginning of deep sorrow but then it moves quickly to exorbitant praise. I was first interested in this text for the mission conference because of the few verses at the end of the text, to be honest with you. So uh, several weeks ago, uh, I chose this text, and I, start, you know, I love those verses near the end, and I thought, well, that, man, this would just be great for a mission conference. But then a, a few weeks ago, I thought, well, you know, I better do my dutiful you know, duty or job uh, to look at the whole text, starting at the beginning, working through the psalm. And when I got at the beginning of the psalm, I thought, what in the world is going on? It seems like uh, this, this major contrast. It goes from deep, sad, sorrowful lament to high, glowing, rejoicing praise. So I found the psalm kind of going or ranging quickly from two extremes, from low to high. Have you ever met a person before who quickly goes in their temperament from high to low, back to high again? Okay, now don't elbow the person. I see some of you out there uh, elbowing your spouse. You're not supposed to do that in church, okay? Uh, so don't look around, but have you ever met someone like that? I have to be honest with you, those sort of people kind of intrigue me. They're a mystery to me, okay? Uh, I was an only child, of course. And as an only child, I, I'm not used to a lot of commotion in a home. I'm still not used to it, okay? 
And, uh, you know, God's been very gracious to me to place me in the home that we're in. But one of the things for me is, you know, I'm, I'm not used to all of the highs and the lows sometimes occurring spontaneously and at the same time among all the different family members. Sometimes I do feel like I'm leading the tribe of Israel, you know, with seven people in the home. Well, at first glance at this text, it can be confusing, I think, because of all the highs and the lows. As I said before, it seems like it's almost written by two different authors, but there is a good way forward through the text. And this evening, I want to trace the text. We'll go, we'll survey through it in three movements. Okay, so the first 21 verses in the text are what I call an intense lament, an intense lament. And we won't take the time to look at them all specifically, but the key to the lament at the beginning, at least according to my understanding, in the first half of this chapter, is to see that the psalmist keeps going back and forth between different types of pronouns, first, second, and third person pronouns. Okay, so if you're just studying this on your own, if we had a time to stop and study it, I'd encourage you to go and look for those pronouns and circle them. You know, and for those of you who haven't had English class in a while, that's first person pronouns like I, me, and my, and, and then second person pronouns, you, and third person pronouns, things like they and them. And I think that if we just work through this text very quickly and we try to answer the questions of who is the psalmist referring to, it will really set us up well as we go throughout the text. And, and honestly, one of the most difficult things to this text in Psalm 22 is to try to figure out who the psalmist means when he keeps saying I, when he says I, uses that first person pronoun. Uh, we, we will, uh, for the time being, call that person the person crying out or the supplicant. We're not going to identify him yet. We're going to figure it out as we go throughout. Uh, now, fortunately, when he says you, that's a lot easier because he's, this lament is the supplicant praying out, crying out to you, and that is Yahweh, that's God. And the they is, is pretty easy as well, at least in basic form. When he talks about they or them, the people around him, he's describing his enemies, his enemies, Okay, so I want to look at this a little bit more in detail. Let's first look at the they. Look with me in your Bibles at verses 7 and 8. In verses 7 and 8 here, the psalmist describes how people mock the supplicant, the one who's crying out to God. Verse 7 says, all who seek me, mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So early on here, we, we learn that people are mocking the supplicant by staring at him with open mouths and by shaking their heads at him in scorn and mocking him and suggesting that Yahweh doesn't even really like the supplicant, doesn't like the eye, and that God won't deliver him. Then again, you look in your Bibles at verses 12 and 13, you can see a little bit more about the they, the opponents of the supplicant. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. In verses 12 and 13 here, the psalmist describes these opponents as brute beasts 
and savage animals who surround the supplicant to harm him. It's interesting to me in verses 12 and 13, the second line always makes what you find in the first line of the verse worse. Okay, so like you look at verse 12 uh, in Psalm 22, many bulls encompass me, that's, that's bad. Okay, I'm surrounded by many steers, but then it gets worse. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Okay, so what the psalmist is saying here is that these aren't just any steers. These are like the steers that are raised up in the, the pasturage of Bashan, you know, where everything grows bigger and better. And then in verse 13, as he's describing these opponents in metaphorical terms, he says, they open wide their mouths at me. Okay, and that's, that's bad enough, but they're like a ravening and roaring lion. These attackers resemble not a mere ordinary lion, but a tearing, roaring one. Okay, so those are the enemies of the supplicant. Now, in this, in this lament at the beginning, one of the trickier things is to identify who the, the I is, and that's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. Noticing the they's is only a part of the puzzle. Next, we must see how the supplicant or the psalmist uses first-person pronouns, I, me, and mine. Again, I think this is a most, probably the most important part to interpreting this psalm. Before we figure it out, let's read through the text and see what he says about the I. Look at verses 1 and 2. The psalmist starts out with a very familiar verse, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. You read the beginning of this psalm, and you just come to this really gut-wrenching. It's like a wrenching beginning to the psalm. Whoever this I is, whoever this supplicant is, he's in severe turmoil. And he's crying out to God, and he's asking him why he's forsaken him. Why have you abandoned me? Why won't you respond to me and my cries? And the word he used for cries here is, is a word that would speak more of just like, you know, just tears, but it's like his raspy cries out for help. He's yelling or screaming for help, and he's questioning why God doesn't help him. But keep learning more about the I. Look at verse 6. He said, but I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind, despised by people. Here he gives a fourfold description of the supplicant, and things are really bad. He feels as insignificant as a worm, and no one notices or cares about him. And the only people who do notice him scorn or despise him. But the description gets even worse in verses 14 through 18. So we're going down through here. We're trying to figure out who is the I? And how is this psalmist describing him? Look at verse 14. He said, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, a dry pot. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You... Lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have encompassed me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced uh, my hands and feet. 
They divide my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. We learn in verses 14 through 16 in this supplicant, this one crying out to God is that his life is leaving him. His bones are all out of joint. His heart has melted like wax, which means his spirits is, is, he's losing his spirit and his strength. He's about to die. He's surrounded by evil people. And you notice in the text, verses 17 and 18, what these evil people do to him. What do they do to him? So I didn't know we were going to do this on a Friday night. Yeah, what do they do to him? We're going to look at this text. They pierce his hands and side. And they cast lots. They divide up his garments among themselves and they cast lots for his clothing. I think it's at this point in the psalm in our study that we finally have to make a decision regarding who the I is, okay? And fortunately, there are two basic answers to who the I is in the psalm. Some people suggest in Psalm 22 that when, when the, the psalmist, who's probably David, speaks, he's speaking about himself and his own predicament and the future predicament that Jesus would face. So some people say the I of Psalm 22 is David and Christ. And I'll, I'll just read you an example here of a, of a scholar who would say that his name is Alan Ross, great commentator in Psalms. He says it has to be read first, this Psalm has to be read first in the suffering psalmist experience as an urgent prayer to be delivered from enemies who were methodically putting him to death. Okay, so he's saying, first of all, you read it and you think about David's predicament. He says, then it may be read on the higher level to see how the psalm was applied to the greater sufferings of Jesus. Okay, and in answer to that, that idea or that view that the psalm is about David, but it's also in some ways about Jesus, I'd say that would be kind of my natural way of looking at it initially when I read it. When someone says I and they're writing a book, I'm thinking it's David or it's, you know, it's the author. If Paul in the New Testament is writing a, an epistle and he says I, me, mine, I'm thinking he's talking about himself. Uh, however, there is another way to take this, and uh, so others suggest that the I refers only to Jesus. And what the psalmist David is doing here is he is speaking prophetically of the future Messiah, Jesus. And so that as you're reading through the psalm, the psalmist is describing and putting lips into the words of Jesus that he will proclaim or thoughts that he will have in his future life. There are clearly many reasons to take it this way as well, that this is only Jesus. Uh, for instance, there are many times that the New Testament authors in your, in your Bible will quote this psalm and apply it directly to Jesus. So, for instance, I wrote down just, I, and you can, do this, you can do this more thoroughly than what I did here, but each one of the synoptic, go, uh, synoptic gospel writers, that's hard to say on a Friday night, uh, each one of them take a portion of this psalm and they apply it right to Jesus. Okay, so if you're reading in Matthew 27, verse 43, and, and each one of these three I'm going to show you are in the crucifixion of Jesus. Matthew 27, 43 says, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. If you remember the context there, this is people mocking Jesus as, at his crucifixion, and they're quoting Psalm 22 and verse 8. 
If you look right next to it, in the column right next to it on, on I should say that side, he says, it, Psalm 22, 8 says, and you've got it right in front of you, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Other gospel writers do this. In Mark chapter 15, verse 29, Mark says, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you, would, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. If you remember when we were reading through Psalm 22 and verse 7, it says, all who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. This, of course, the gospel of Mark is using this, this text as a reference to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the fact that people were wagging their heads, heads mocking Jesus while he hung on the cross. You go to Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, and there's another verse from this psalm that's quoted in, by the gospel writers. Luke 23, 34 says, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then what's the very next line? And they cast lots to divide his garments. That comes directly from this psalm, Psalm 22 and verse 18, when it says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Okay, so what I'm saying is there's a good reason to think that Jesus is at least, uh, it, this, that much of this text at least is talking about Jesus because the gospel writers keep referring to it and applying it to Jesus. Not only do the gospel writers, this, this passage, Psalm 22, is a very important text in the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in verse 12, Hebrews 2.12 says this, he says, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The author of Hebrews is, is talking about what Jesus would say, or what Jesus had said. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of your congregation, I'll sing your praise. Well, that's a quotation from Psalm 22 and verse 22. Verse 22 of the psalm we're looking at when it says, I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of your congregation, I will praise you. And so not only do New Testament authors attribute this to Jesus, one of the, of course, and some of you are probably waiting for this, not only do the New Testament authors attribute this to Jesus, Christ himself appropriates parts of this psalm to himself. So Mark 15, 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, or Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, that forms the very first words of this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so all these references to Jesus in the New Testament that come right out of Psalm 22 have led some to apply this passage only to Christ. And so I'll give you another example here. This is Derek Kidner. And then I'm going to tell you what I think. And then we'll move along to the place I really want to get in the text. Derek Kidner said, no incident recorded of David can, can begin to account for this. So Kidner's saying, this isn't about David, Psalm 22. While David was once threatened with stoning, this, what's described in Psalm 22, is a very difficult scene. The language of the psalm defies a naturalistic explanation. The best account is in the terms used by Peter concerning another psalm of David, being therefore a prophet, David. He foresaw and he spoke of the Christ. And so I would actually find myself agreeing with Kidner here. I think that it's best to see David writing this psalm prophetically of Christ. 
So David is not describing his, his own predicament in his own life. He's uh, because we're not aware of times where it got this bad for David. I mean, some of the descriptions here for David, I mean, we're not aware of a historical situation where people pierced through David's hands and feet. And we're not aware of a time, I know it got bad for David in many cases, but we're not aware of a time in David's life where, you know, he, he got down to his final clothes and then people took his clothes and they divided them up and, and cast lots for them. Okay, and so um, I would agree with Kidner here. I think there are some others perhaps uh, in the room who might take it, and different people would take it different ways here. Having said that, since both views believe that the text can be looked at through the lens of Christ, I want to take the rest of this passage in relationship to Christ. Christ is the I. David is speaking prophetically before Jesus was ever born, and he's speaking prophetically about Jesus. That leads us to, we, we've got to answer one other thing in the text in the lament to, to make sense of that, and that's the you. Who's the you? And we said this one's easy, so look down in verse 3. It says, yet you are holy. Yet you are holy, he said, enthroned in the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So the psalmist speaks here of Christ's perspective, I think, of the transcendent splendor of God who sits enthroned on all of the praises that have come from Israel. It's a metaphorical description. He's a high and lofty God. He's separated from sin, and he's, he's sitting enthroned on all the praises of the Israelite people. And he also tells us that the Israelite patriarchs have trusted fully in him. So who's the you? It's, it's God. It's Yahweh. God the Father. Look at verses 19 through 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. <clears throat> Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. So here we learn about God that not only has he been the God of Israel that sits enthroned in their praises, but the psalmist declares that he has been Christ's help. Although this is true, the lament continues by Christ asking God to come quickly to his aid in this text, to deliver his soul or his very life. Psalmist has Christ asking for deliverance here, okay? So there are three parts to this psalm. I think we got the lament. We know who the I is, who the you is, and who the they are. Then, in the middle of verse 21, there is a sudden transition in the psalm. This is a fascinating song. Remember the, the lows and the highs. A sudden transition is just found in one phrase. And so I want you to look at verse 21 in the middle of this psalm. It says, you, who's the you? You still awake on a Friday night? Who's the you? You, God, have rescued me. Who do I think the me is? Christ. I didn't say who you think it is because I haven't had time to really convince you yet until the break time. You, God, have rescued me, Jesus, from the horns of the wild oxen. This little phrase I call a sudden transition, the second point in my sermon, a sudden transition. To this point, Christ has been pouring his heart out to God to deliver him from his enemies. 
But then he says in this text, God has rescued or answered him. I described this transition as sudden and very important. And if the first few verses of this Psalm, 1 through 21, speak about Christ in his death and crucifixion, it's my perspective that now he's speaking of something that occurs after his resurrection, perhaps in conjunction with his resurrection. God rescued him. Now, he says it metaphorically again, from the wild oxen. You know, we're left to think, well, you know, what's the wild oxen? But perhaps it's not too surprising for us because all along the way in the psalm, we, we have the psalmist describing the supplicant's enemies as animals. They're bulls of Bashan, they're dogs, they're lions, they're wild oxen. I think this would just be the enemies of Jesus. The enemies of Jesus who crucified him. God, you have rescued me from the wild ox. So, so at the end of verse 21, the whole scene changes in one sudden phrase. You have rescued me. And that transition can be seen clearly in the final point I want to make with you this evening. And that is that the rest of this psalm from verse 22 through the end contains widespread praise to God for his deliverance. Okay, so like the beginning is, is lament. Why, God, won't you help me? Why have you forsaken me? Why won't you do something? Why won't you hear me? Why won't you deliver me from the, the dogs and the bulls and all of this stuff? But then verse 21, you have rescued me. And so then after that, it's praise. And so this is some of the reasons why I came here. Uh, so why I came to this text, wanted to preach it. Uh, so I divide the last part of this psalm up into two sections, where first, Christ calls on Israel, Israel, to join in worshiping God for the way he delivered Christ. Read with me, I'll read it out loud, verses 22 through 26. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he is not despised or abhorred or afflicted, or the, the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise, or comes the reason for my praise in the great congregation My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. So what I think is going on in these verses is that Jesus, you know, in contemplation after the resurrection, he challenges Israel to join him in praising a God like this who would deliver him from affliction. Who would deliver him from affliction. And so as you go through these verses, Jesus is no longer alone. He's praising God in the middle of the congregation of the offspring of Israel and Jacob. And so praising God, he is in the midst of the people of Israel. And the psalmist appeals to the offspring of Jacob and Israel to do three things here, to, to join with Christ in praising, glorifying, and standing in awe of God. That's verse 23. Praise him, glorify him with me, stand in awe of God with me. 
And in verse 24, he gives reasons for the Jewish people to join him in praising God. They should praise and glorify God because God has not despised or abhorred or hated or hidden his face from the one, capital O, from the one who suffered and cried out to him in his affliction. Instead, God heard and delivered him. So this is saying throughout the text here. In other words, Jesus declares that Israel should be able to rejoice in and worship the God who delivered him from death. Israel here should rejoice in the responsiveness of God to the cries and the pleads of Jesus. The cross, and again, I think this is perhaps after his resurrection, he has these thoughts. And he continues through the end of this, and we won't have time to look at all of it, but the end of verse 26 is, is very interesting. He says, may your hearts live forever. He's a, I think he's still appealing to Jews. May, may your hearts live forever. It's like this powerful conclusion. Now, join me in praising the God who delivered me, and may all your hearts live forever. However, Although that could form a fitting conclusion to the psalm, the psalm's not done. There's another section that follows. And so uh, in verses 27 through 31, in the real conclusion of the psalm, Christ broadens it. This is why we're here tonight in this text, in this moment. Look with me at verses 27 through 31. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him, or younger generations born from these first ones. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. (coughs) They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. I love how this all meant. That that, That he has done it. That he has done it. That God has done it. In these verses... Christ describes the wide, the worldwide impact of God's deliverance of, of himself, of Jesus. If I were to put a heading on the section, I'd say, Christ calls the nations to join in worship of God, the God who delivered him from his affliction. Here he speaks of all the ends of the earth and all the families of the nations. And Jesus imagines a day when all of these people remember, turn to, and bow down to the Lord. These three uh, terms, uh, remember, turn to, bow down, said that the nations must be mindful of how God has rescued Jesus and must turn and bow low to him. According to my calculations, I was going through the Psalms and looking at these three verbs that are used here. These are the only three times I've ever seen these three verbs used of the nations. In this Psalm, in the Psalter, these words are used here, the nations, only here. 
And so Christ calls for the nations to enjoy God. And they should respond this way because, look in verse 28, because kingship belongs to the Lord. And because God rules over the nations. I think what he's basically saying in verse 28 is these reasons declare that it's fitting for all the families of the nations to worship God because he's sovereign over it all anyway. He's the ruler over all the nations, so it's fitting for them to respond in this way. As we look at the rest of the passage, I won't go into detail on this because I want to make some applications for us here at the end. I think the rest of the passage explains that one day the prosperous and those who are just about die will worship Christ. And I think he gets into some descriptions that will probably, in my opinion, be fulfilled during the millennial kingdom. During the millennial kingdom, when not only the Israelite people, but all, all the nations will bow and worship Christ. The end, however, as I said, has, has drawn my attention in verse 31 when he says that God has done it. That is, God has accomplished or completed the deliverance of the Son. What's interesting to me, as we close here, is that David puts these words and concepts into the mouth of Christ, God's Son, and that the Holy Spirit, of course, inspired him to do that hundreds or thousand years before Jesus lives. And here Christ imagines a day when the nations will come and worship God forevermore. What's perhaps amazing to me as I reflected on this psalm and got to know it a little bit over the last three weeks or four weeks is that we just might have here Christ's thoughts and words at some of the most important moments in the history of the world. Ever stopped yourself and, and, and wondered, you know, what was Jesus thinking when he was hanging on the cross? What was he thinking? What sort of feelings was he have? What were his considerations? I think verses 1 through 21 might just help us there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Deliver me. Deliver me from these dogs, from these evil workers. But I think, I think as well that uh, perhaps if you take the end of this text the way that I, I do, that uh, you might have the thoughts and the feelings of Christ the moment or moments after he was resurrected from God. Ever stop to think about that? Wonder what Jesus was thinking when he arose from the dead. I think these thoughts should be very special to us because I think Perhaps what you find in verses 22 through 31 would be his thoughts. As we consider this text, I, I think what we have in this text is much like interviewing someone who is very special to us, someone we love, maybe he's great, and has had an important moment. I remember as a young boy asking my grandfather, uh, his name was Jim Belford, uh, about an event that my father had relayed to me, and I never had the opportunity to talk with him about. It was a near-death experience that he had when he was in the Navy. My grandfather uh, served in World War II, and he was aboard the USS St. Augustine. He wasn't actually deployed in battle, but he was aboard the USS St. Augustine when it collided into another ship and it sank, 
on January 6th, not January, so take note of that, January 6th, 1944. It sunk off of Cape May, New Jersey. January, New Jersey. Over the ha- another ship and it collided in the waters. More than half of the men on board the ship did not make it. But by God's grace, my then unsaved grandfather survived. I remember him telling me the story of his survival. He was asleep in his bunk when the ships collided with one another. The ships collided in the middle of the night. My grandfather was thrown out of his bunk. He told me of the heroic sacrifice of one of his friends, a man that he grew up with in the same town that was somehow on this same ship who gave his life jacket up for a friend who had been burned severely. My grandfather explained to me that he watched his friend drowned a few minutes later. He recalled how cold the waters were. He tried to explain that to me as a small child. He explained that when the ship went down, he clung to a spar on a mast for several minutes and thought he was not going to survive. He explained to me that uh, a few minutes later, a raft came floating by that rescued him and three other men. He explained, I'll never forget, he explained the eerie silence that he experienced for an hour and a half while he was waiting and waiting for someone to come and get them. He explained to me the joy that he felt when he, he heard the Coast Guard cutter coming to rescue him. As I heard this story conveyed to me by my grandfather, I was especially interested in two moments, so I asked him these two questions. I remember asking him how he felt when he, was, when he thought that he was going to die and he was clinging to the mast. How did you feel in that moment? What were your thoughts? What was going on? And I also remember asking him how he felt when he heard the Coast Guard cutter coming. And he thought that he was going to survive. As a small child, I was fascinated by his thoughts and his feelings during the low moment and the high moment, since I cared so deeply for him. The psalmist David helps us understand what was on the mind of Christ when he hung on the cross and then explains what was on the heart of Christ in the moments after God brought him victory over death at his resurrection. And men and women, in those moments, Jesus' mind was on the nations. All the ends of the earth. All the families of the nations. And his mind was on the Father the Father. God has done it. He's done it. Reminds me in the New Testament, it is finished. It is finished. May the thoughts and the feelings that came from our Savior at those moments give us a desire 
to press out of the walls of Colonial Baptist Church and to take his gospel, his glorious gospel, to Israel and the nations. Will you pray with me this evening that God does a significant work in our mission conference? And that God would greatly affect us with the affections of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you, we know many of much of this psalm was used concerning Christ and his crucifixion. Lord, as we consider this psalm and work through it on this Friday evening, I, I'm, I'm sure that we become a little bit more familiar with how Jesus must have felt when he was dying, when he was dying on the cross. Perhaps wanting to live or knowing that you'd forsaken him. But Lord, as we consider this passage this evening, may we also consider perhaps after the transition when you rescued him, when you delivered him, how Jesus turns to the Israelite people, the offspring of Israel and Jacob, says, join me in worshiping this God who delivered me. Now his heart and his mind, he imagines a day when not only Israel and Jacob and all the offspring will join in worship, but the day when all the nations will bow and worship the Lord as well. Father, I want to thank you for this psalm, for how you used it in my own heart and life, but I pray that you would begin to do a significant work in our lives as well. Lord, may we be greatly affected by the affections of Christ. For the nations. Lord, we pray as well for our speakers. Uh, Brother Doran will be speaking in just a short amount of time. We, Lord, we pray that you would use that in our hearts and our lives as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.